We are in continuing through the Gospel of Matthew in the 23rd chapter. And we're presently looking at the eight woes that the Lord Jesus Christ pronounces against the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Today's message we have titled Unmasking the Hypocrite. We're going to look to two verses found in Matthew 23. The fifth woe the Lord pronounces in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. We'll be looking at that later in the message, that particular verse. That verse is well known, but what it means, I wonder sometimes, is is it really known at all in many cases? Hypocrisy is a terrible word. It's a hard thing. It means, of course, the putting on of a face that hides the real character behind it, the real intent of the heart behind it. It covers and is meant to cover the vile condition of the heart by religious acts. And it's brought out in various aspects, of course, in this 23rd chapter of Matthew by our Lord. When the Lord Jesus Christ here pronounces woe to the scribes and Pharisees, this, of course, is a strong denunciation by the one who pierces to the inward condition of the heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. Man looks outward. God sees inward. And as in Hebrews 4.13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, no matter how much is covered to the sight of men, men who cannot see the heart. They cannot see the motive. So that with us, as with Hagar, we ought to be able to say, Thou, O God, seest me. That's a solemn thing when it's comprehended in truth. And this woe, this woe pronounced by the Lord Jesus Christ is far more than denunciation. It implies as well that those upon whom it is pronounced have received the judgment of the one to whom all judgment is committed and shall stand before. And it shall end in the greatest possible suffering for sin called everlasting punishment. So the Lord Jesus says to these hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? 
It's a very solemn passage, of course, to which we look. And so we're to take the most earnest heed to the receiving of the words of him who is Lord of all. I'm just a mouthpiece. It's his word, of course, that goes forth. We're to give the utmost attentiveness to him before whose judgment seat we shall indeed appear. Of course, we find a lot of deceit. These are blind leaders of the blind. But you know what the worst kind of deceit is? It's self-deceit. It comes from the self-love that causes one to assume what they are when they are not what they assume. And when the Lord tears off the mask, when he exposes the real condition of the heart, showing that even some right acts do not remove the inward and woeful condition of the heart, it's hoped that he will also turn one from that self-destroying condition. This solemn passage to which we look. We dare not soften it. We dare not compromise with it. But we pray that God would give us attentive hearts and all seriousness to listen to what he says. Self-deception is the strongest, the hardest deception there is. When one opens their heart and mind to behold what they really are by nature, and he brings them to himself, this only comes in a wondrous redemption from sin, a deliverance also from its power. And in this condition, the Lord gives a new heart. This new heart comes in a wondrous spiritual birth, which alone will turn one from the condition of woe to the condition of blessing and will remove the self-deceit. In Psalm 32, the psalmist begins, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. I think we can put a couple of things together there very quickly. Those who are forgiven, cleansed from sin. Wondrous the gift of God in this through Christ by his cross. They also have their self-deception removed. No guile. No guile in them. Sadly, these scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, they will very soon strain at the gnat of ceremonial religion. They're going to deliver up the Lord of glory to be crucified. But in the trial, they won't go into the hall where he's being tried because they would be ceremonially defiled. The one, the only one 
who could deliver them from sin and from its eternal condemnation, they would, of course, perform the ultimate act of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Yet in this, they would fulfill also the scriptures. The scriptures that predicted the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the reign of the Lord of glory, of the King of kings, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the promised Messiah, of the rock of salvation for all of those who are called and come to him. They would secure, unknown to them, the salvation of multitudes from every nation. As later in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul would preach in a synagogue to Jewish people. Tell them about those in Jerusalem who read the scriptures every Sabbath day and fulfilled them in that they condemned him. God's purpose was brought about. Yet those who brought about the crucifixion were as guilty as if God had nothing to do with it. It's a solemn thing. And so, when we look into these verses, we consider the character, the character of these that the Lord Jesus Christ exposes as hypocrites. And the danger it posed to those who were supposed to be led by them. The Lord is exposing their vile and sinister character. He's exposing it to them. But in a wider sense, he's also exposing it publicly. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, we learn, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. He exposes them in front of the people. He exposes them before the whole of those who were gathered before him. I think that's kind of a prelude to the solemn judgment yet to come at the last day when the sins of men will be exposed before all. might be well to keep in mind that these men did not care for the glory of God. Oh, they may have professed, we want to do what we do for God's glory. How many, before they do any act or anything, will ask the question, is this going to glorify God? Is this according to His will? Is this going to bring honor to His name? These probably professed loudly that they glorified God. Neither did they do that, nor did they enjoy him. They were hypocrites. They could say what they weren't and what they would not do. Matter of fact, you know what motivated them? What moved them? The praise of men. What men thought about them, not what God thought about them. Well, we know that's so. The Lord Jesus says here in Matthew 23 and verses 5 through 7. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. 
They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the market. And to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. That's what they were after, the praise of men, the acclaim of men. That's why they did what they did. And were engaged in so many things that men would praise them for. And not only was this behind all their works, all the things they involved themselves in, it also is what moved their hatred. It moved their hatred to oppose the Lord Himself, to use every means they could devise. To discredit him in the eyes of the people. He had exposed them. They're furious. He is the light. But this light did not. Remove the darkness in their particular hearts. The exposure of their hypocrisy. Hardened them. All the more. But he remains the light. The light that exposes the darkness. And men don't love one who reproves them. They don't mind, they enjoy sometimes teaching that causes them no real searching of soul. But he exposes them. He's the light. Like a parent. You can have a parent that's going to indulge your children you're going to have a parent that's going to love the children enough to reprove them unless there's wisdom in that child is going to go to the one they think is going to give the most to them but here in the ultimate sense the darkness hates the light of Christ the darkness hates the light and the Lord Jesus, of course, said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, remember? This is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. They wouldn't come to the light. They wouldn't bow down and praise God for the light that exposed their true need. They would just become infuriated. Blessed, blessed those who are brought to a genuine repentance by repenting when the reproving light comes, seeing him who is the light of the glory of God and who come to him and who in coming to him have the promise that he will in no wise cast out the penitent believing who do so. But the sad sequel here, which, of course, the Lord already knew, and would draw out his deep expression of grief, not for himself, but for them, because they would face a soon-coming judgment in 70 A.D., the worst judgment that ever came on a city in the world. 
and they would face an eternal judgment to come at the last day. And the Lord Jesus Christ is broken over that. That's why we have verses 37 and 38, the lament of the Savior. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. These blind leaders, these blind leaders would soon accomplish turning the people against These blind leaders would bring about the cry from them, we will not have this man to reign over us. And move the people to cry, crucify him. But unknown to them, but in the very purpose of God, for the greatest good ever, they would bring about the means by which God would save a vast multitude out of every nation in this earth, out of every kindred, every ethnic group, every family. The blessing of Abraham would extend to, and the salvation would extend to, and would come to know him who is the light of the world, who is the bread of life, who is Alpha and Omega. This, of course, would include both those, those who were chosen to salvation out of the Jewish nation called the remnant in Scripture, and the addition of Gentiles from every nation because of the great heart and purpose of God which is incredible in mercy God's mercy is astounding it astounds me when I think of where I was where he brought me how he got me where I am now in Christ I can hardly take it in I can hardly take it in I read the scripture like in Psalm 103 the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger not simply that merciful, full of mercy. Full of mercy. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's, he's abundant in mercy. And that mercy is incredible. And when God saves by a wondrous mercy, it's his sovereign mercy that's bestowed in salvation. That's what caused the Apostle Paul to exclaim in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And the solemn truth is that we who are now saved by the wondrous grace of God, by God alone, sovereign, free grace, apart from any merit or any works that we could ever perform, we were just as vile as those scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Do you realize that? But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing like this salvation. There is nothing in this world that can compare to this. And the glorious, wondrous love that's behind it that God makes known to us in the cross of our blessed Savior. But we want to return to our text to consider what's exposed in this fifth woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And what we learn is that they not only majored on the minor, they neglected the major altogether. Verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. You see, they were scrupulous in certain things. They were scrupulous in tithing. Of course, the law commanded tithing. It commanded it as, for instance, in Luke chapter 27 and verses 30 through 33. It also is commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 22 through 29. But they went beyond it to the tithing of the smallest herbs of their gardens. Of which the law really made no mention whatsoever. Then, of course, they would lead their disciples to do the same. You remember, of course, the Lord's parable. We quoted it together this morning, that parable of the, uh, the uh, publican and the Pharisee. And the major thing the Pharisee brings out is what? I give tithes of all that I possess. Well, in that he did a whole lot more than some professing Christians, that's for sure. But that's where he majored. Sometimes pretty easy to give money. Not so easy to give of yourself. Not so easy to be completely consecrated with a daily cross to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easier to give money. These Pharisees were in the habit of making up their own rules. They added human tradition to the divine law. And they majored upon minor details. And they commanded the people to do also what the Lord Jesus said. They wouldn't move with one of their fingers. They were blind too. They were completely in ignorance of the weightiest and the most important commandments that God gave. They minored. They majored upon the minor. The big things of the law, the huge things, required judgment or justice and mercy, being fair, fair to people, being ready to help others whenever there was a need 
and faith that included not only what is believed, but faithfulness to God, true to him, and what he commanded. Any care about people? Like the Levi who went by the man who was all busted up on the side of the road? Passed by him? When the despised Samaritan came, healed his wounds, and took care of him, and took him to an inn? Micah 6, 8 expresses the big things that God requires. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's huge. That's big, that's weighty. But the heart of the hypocrite, as with these, was void of any real self-giving love for God or their neighbors. And actually despised the common people in their legalistic, self-righteous, self-exalting characters. Of course, Luke tells us in the Lord's parable of the publican, and the Pharisee, that he was particularly addressing those who, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's always the case with legalism. When someone has their few rules and they keep their few rules and they, they despise anyone who doesn't conform to their few rules. The Lord reproves them. He reproves them with correcting words. These, that is tithing, you ought to have done. And not to leave the other judgment, mercy, faith, undone. The law of tithing, which they were under, minus human regulations, should be obeyed. But not to the neglect of the major teaching of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. That is the big thing that can only come out of supreme love to God and one's neighbor as oneself. The dangerous teaching and practice not only affected themselves, but those they should have led in the right ways of God. They were an influence, a big influence on the people. But they, and I quote from Barry's Greek-English interlinear, which is based upon the received text, that is the proper text through which translation should be translated. And he quotes it in the Greek order. These filter out the gnat, but the camel swallow. What is that? What is that talking about? Of course, gnats were tiny insects, of course. You've had problems with them, right? <laughs> tiny insects. They would come sometimes, and if they could, they would, for instance, get into one of the wine cups. Into the wine. So in order to prevent that, they would put a cloth over the cup 
over a container and pour the wine through it. That way, they wouldn't be swallowing that gnat. What would be wrong? I mean, it's not going to kill them, I don't guess, to swallow a gnat. You probably swallowed insects before. I swallowed insects before. That's why I don't like a motorcycle unless you put something over your face. And they're with bug teeth. But the problem with them was not that they thought this would be some unhealthful thing. Gnats were considered unclean. <laughs> so that they would be then swallowing something that was unclean. Well, guess what category the camel was into? It was an unclean animal. And what's the Lord saying? You don't want to swallow this small little gnat. But you swallow this huge camel. The big unclean thing. Of course the meaning is then clear, isn't it? They were extremely scrupulous in the things that related to little importance. That are really unimportant while they completely ignored the really big things that God commanded. There's a principle here that's solemn. They were transgressing without conscience because the conscience was deadened by the one unimportant thing they did or by a few little unimportant things religiously performed. The conscience is deadened. They were blind leaders of the blind. And both they and those who followed them would end in the ditch and in the pit of eternal destruction. Do you know, looking at these verses, weighing them out, and there's always the desire, looking at a passage of Scripture, to find, is there a path to Christ? Is there a path to Christ in these verses? Is there a principle we bring out that can lead us to Christ from these verses? Yes. He's talking about the minor things that were done, soothing the conscience, deceiving those who performed them, to think they were righteous, while they neglected the huge things, Who kept the weightiest commandment ever given? The weightiest commandment ever given was given to the one who reproved the self-righteous and showed the greatest of mercy to those who knew themselves unrighteous. The weightiest command when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he came under the command of the Father. He came because of the command of the Father. As in Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was found in the likeness of, of men, and being found in the likeness of man, he became obedient 
obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was the command given to him to die the death of the cross. That's why he could say in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. It was his command. It was an offering of himself. It was the weightiest commandment ever given. The commandment of God, the Father, to his unique and eternal Son was not simply to give what he had, but to give himself. To give all that he had. To do so by his own volition, submitting himself completely to the will of the Father, though completely knowing the cost that would be to himself. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And only he came down from heaven. Only he. And this coming down was not forced upon him. He was not constrained to come down. He kept the commandment of the Father out of perfect love. It was the free act of his own will. As the psalmist wrote and as is recorded in Hebrews chapter 10. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. To do thy will, O God. By an act of his own volition, he came down. By an act of his own volition, he took upon him our human nature. An eternal person. One with the Father. Uniting himself to our humanity. And all that he did, from the stepping out of eternity into time and all the way to the cross, was out of a heart of perfect obedience so that all he did, including the horrendous death of the cross, was first toward the Father. That we must understand. The first act, the supreme act of the Lord Jesus Christ, was in obedience to the Father's commandment. And nothing would keep him from the cross. When he instructed his apostles and through them his regenerate church. The night before Calvary. He will say to them the prince of this world cometh. And hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the father. And as the father gave me a commandment even so I do. Arise. Let us go hence. He kept all the commandments of his father. How did he do it? He did it out of perfect love to his father. What's the first command of the law? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He alone fulfilled that commandment perfectly with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his might. He didn't neglect any of it. 
But the weightiest command was to take the cross with all of its suffering. The weightiest commandment any ever was given and the most incredible obedience with which anyone ever complied to God's command. And this was not only the work of the Son, it was the work of the Father. You remember in John chapter 4 when the Lord was talking to the woman at the will of Samaria and his disciples came along, they were kind of marveling at that. He says to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The first effect of the cross is Godward. The result is usward. Usward in the sense of those who hear the gospel with the hearing of faith. It was toward the Father, satisfying fully his justice. Talk about keeping the judgment and justice of God. The Lord Jesus Christ did that perfectly. And then... That justice was also satisfied for all whom he would call by his gospel. As in the book of Acts, as many as were ordained to eternal life, who were given the saving gift of repentance from faith, or repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know in this that salvation is all of God, not of man. It's all in Christ and his work alone. It's all by the offering of himself as the sacrifice God accepts on behalf of those who are given to him to redeem and were given to him even before the foundation of the world. And this sacrifice, the death of the cross, not only redeems from all sin, but in removing the barrier of sin between God and the sinner, Christ alone brings us to God in full reconciliation. This is that peace with God that comes by Christ's obedience, not by ours, because he kept the weightiest commandment ever given and supplies the grace to come and trust in him alone. We, being justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what about further application? This alone make true Christians who will obey God not out of constraint of law but by love to him see God in my message I'm glad we do not obey God out of constraining law we obey him by faith and love. Love to him who died for us and rose again. Love to him who took our sins unto his own body, bore them in our place. Unto him that took our hill for a few hours on the cross 
unto him that supremely loved the Father and through that love loves us with the love that sacrificed himself for us. And we who are saved indeed by God's grace, we come to love him because of one reality. He loved us and gave himself for us. Not out of constraint, then, do we obey him, but out of love. Not partially, hypocritically, self-sacrificially and fully. We learn to take our cross daily to follow him. When God does a genuine work of his grace in us, we see him alone as our salvation. We find his perfect righteousness put to our account. And we come to him to die with him and to live in him and unto him. No longer to ourselves and no longer to the world out of which he calls us. But there are those who profess to believe in Christ. Who of the same spirit as the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's a solemn thing to have to say. Of the same character as these who were exposed by our Lord. The conscience can be deadened by giving the most minimal time to the things of God while the world and the things of it still have the heart the time, the treasure, and the talent wasted on things that shall but perish and yet profess to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to love God. It's a solemn thing. The fear of God is lacking, it seems, in our day, as it should be maybe even among us. Why waste our time and efforts on the vain things of the world that has fallen from God while we do a few religious acts or something here and there that soothes the conscience? This can be, by the way, as self-deceptive as was the case of the hypocrites in our text. Christ is our living law. He is our living law. To follow, to imitate, to do what we do out of love, not constraint. Whether we worship God aright in holiness, or to give, to serve each other self-sacrificially, 
or to be a true and unashamed witness in this world. You know what this requires? It requires a death to the old self. It requires a death with Christ and a daily cross to be taken to follow Him. It requires the death of our old sinful self. And it only comes when we turn our backs, not only on the fallen world, but even ourselves. You know what you do when you truly come to Christ? You take sides against yourself. To come to Him. To belong to Him. To no longer belong to yourself. But to Him who died for you and rose again. It's like Charlotte, who wrote Just As I Am. What was her name, Daniel? Memory failed me right on that but who wrote O to be thine yea thine alone O Lamb of God I come we take his death as our death his life as our life we follow him in baptism to show that that we've died with him to be raised to newness of life then is when we truly learn to pray, not hypocritically, but rightly. Not my will. But thine be done. May God bless the ministry of his holy word. What number is that, just as I am? 431, Charlotte Elliott. Thank you, 431. By the way, Charlotte Elliott was as sovereign grace as she could be. 431.
deliver me from being a hypocrite. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Teach me thy right ways. Lead me in thy truth. I know we're some of us concerned about our families, their priorities. I know some of us are concerned about children, loved ones, acquaintances. Some of us wonder about the salvation of those who claim to be saved, but they have no fruit to bear for it, but can be very religious. God help us and have mercy. These things are serious. These things involve eternity. Keep praying. Barbara, I know, prays earnestly, and William was there with her this morning, and the Word of God was given forth, and I'm thankful for John. And uh, the Lord led him to bring forth some very important things that one who's never heard the gospel, well, I know he's heard it outwardly, but inwardly. Pray for him. Pray for William. And others. We ought to be broken hearted. And give ourselves to what matters. What is really weighty. John, please dismiss us in prayer. We praise you and thank you, Heavenly Father, that out of your great love and mercy, you provided us a perfect salvation and a perfect Savior. 
who loves us and cares for us and he teaches us the right way. He teaches us against sin and hypocrisy and teaches us the true way of righteousness. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to be conformed to his image, to love your son, to trust in him fully, and to take up the cross and follow him. Please bless us now as we uh, commune together and as we spend more time and in the future message that we're going to receive this afternoon. We ask your blessing, Heavenly Father, and strengthen our faith and grant us to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen.